Tracy. What do you want? You're wonderful. It's like that movie. What movie? I love you. Nothing else matters. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. Can't be anything like love, can it? No. That's a chick's movie. I would say so. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, romcom.com. I am your host, Berkeley Powell, and today I am here with no one. We're wrapping up the project, the final film, what the American Film Institute deems the best American romantic comedy ever put to the screen. It is Charlie Chaplin's 1931 classic, City Lights. Today, we're going to be talking about City Lights a little bit, but primarily just reflecting on the project, wrapping up the films I've watched, doing a little bit ranking, so please stick around at the end to hear my personal thoughts on the movies I watched throughout the podcast, and how I personally would rank them in my own list. So, Charlie Chaplin's 1931, City Lights. Let's talk about it. Spoiler alert, I will spoil this movie. So, this is the oldest film I've encountered on the list so far, 1931's. It is a silent movie, and a very interesting thing about this film when I was watching it is I didn't realize at the time that this movie came out three years into the talking era, meaning at the time that this film was released, it was no longer normal to be watching silent films in theaters. People had moved on, the talking era had come in rapidly. It is one of the biggest technological innovations we've seen in film so far, is the quick introduction and adoption of talking pictures. 1927, The Jazz Singer comes out, the first talking pictures, Warner Brothers releases, boom, 1931, everyone's talking in films. And then we have Charlie Chaplin, an icon in the film lexicon, comes in and he decides that he wants to make yet another silent picture. No one else, I am convinced, no one else in Hollywood could do this but Charlie Chaplin himself. A little backstory, I've seen a few Charlie Chaplin films before. Um, I, of course, find him endlessly endearing, endlessly lovable, charming, charismatic. He is just empathy incarnate, the Tramp character, iconic for a reason. But when you watch this film, there is an obvious disconnect that we will discuss because it is silent. This is not only a movie my parents didn't watch growing up, but my own grandmother wasn't born until seven years after this movie was released. So it's going to be more challenging to relate to these characters, relate to these themes, and just relate to the entire aesthetic and the delivery of this picture when it's told silently. Now don't get me wrong, I still connected with this film, the characters, I thought Chaplin's performance was excellent, and I thought Virginia Cheryl, who plays the flower girl in this picture, brought so much, uh, ironically, insightfulness to this role, and I think she really enhances the picture. But this does feel like your typical Chaplin movie. Pratt falls, pitfalls, he sets himself up just to fall over again. I mean, the tramp is the most notorious loser in the history of film, so it only makes sense that this would be yet another platform for Chaplin to show off his comedic abilities, his physical comedy, and his physical stunts that he does so well over and over and over again in this picture. And of course, it feels very episodic. It does almost at times feel like I'm watching a vaudeville show, because that's the way Chaplin operates. When you read about the history behind this film getting made, it is very intriguing, something most audiences don't realize about Chaplin, because he is ingrained in pop culture, and we love to love this character, is he was very much so your modern film director. He was a tyrant on set. He was an artist with a vision, and he had to see it through completely. And you can't see that in this movie, because everything plays out so effortlessly. 
However, in reality, this picture was in production for almost three years. Perhaps that explains why it is a silent picture. Maybe Chaplin conceived this and he thought it would be a silent picture and then talkies came in the way and he just refused to adapt to the changing times because, face it, this is what Chaplin does best. So let's get back to this movie, a very simple, comprehensible premise. The tramp character falls in love with a little shop girl who sells flowers and realizes she's blind. Because she's blind, she has no prejudice against this clearly poor, raggedy loser of a fellow. They instantly spark up this friendship of sorts, which is why I strongly believe this movie is not romantic enough to be listed as one of the top 10 best American romantic comedies of all time. But they spark up this friendship, he continues to help her while he's fulfilling these little mundane tasks, although they, of course, all end in hilarity for this millionaire. And at the end of the movie, here's the spoiler alert, he finally gets the girl after she's regained her eyesight and she still wants him. She still cares about him, she still loves him. I know it sounds like I just reduced this story so much, but let's go ahead, let's talk about the disconnect. When we are so far from the era people were when they were going to the cinemas, when they were watching these silent films because it was the most advanced form of entertainment they ever had. And now we are not only to where we get that type of entertainment, that elevated level of entertainment in our own living rooms, we have it in our pockets. Can we still enjoy this? Of course. There is so much to take away from this. For one, Chaplin was a pioneer film. He was one of the first people in filmmaking to understand that not only do audiences want a good story, but they want a character. They want someone they can pour into themselves. They want someone that represents them. This is essential. His contemporaries like Buster Keaton were doing this around the same time as well. Chaplin's contribution to film as an art form is undisputed. He really perfected his craft and that is evident in the pictures you see. However, do I enjoy this movie when I watch it? Honestly, no. The humor no longer appeals to me because I'm used to a different type of humor. No longer do the movies and the entertainment I'm consuming have to rely on this physical humor because they're able to speak. They're able to articulate their jokes. They're able to express the funniness within their lives. Chaplin didn't have those at his disposal. Now, of course, when he was making this movie, he did, but he chose to stay true to his roots and do this all in pantomime. In fact, the actual film opens a comedy romance in pantomime, which I thought was very funny and very fitting for a movie that's now listed as the number one best romantic comedy of all time. Um, so, yeah. It's not funny because it's not the humor that I am conditioned to respond to. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good physical gag here and there. Most movies have it. But the constant, 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 and it's not even dependency, but the constant use of physical gags is not appealing. Also, face it, I like to watch a movie where people are interacting on screen. I like to watch a movie where people are interacting on screen. Many people are going to criticize this and say, oh, well, you just can't find appreciation in the silent films. No, I appreciate this. I recognize for what it is. But I also recognize watching this film how people were able to take this excellent formula, all these skills that Chaplin so expertly crafted on the screen, and how they were able to improve upon them to create films and to create stories that were meaningful and impactful in color with speaking parts. Nevertheless, this is such a gem, and it is, like I said, irresistibly charming. 
Virginia Cheryl plays the flower girl. Interestingly, interestingly enough, Chaplin first fired her and brought her back on set when he realized that they had gotten so far into production that he couldn't bring in another actress in time. Originally, he was going to use an actress that he used for his other very popular film, The Gold Rush. But, of course, when she came back in, she did a few tests and they realized, crap, we do not have time to get this movie done with a new star. Virginia Cheryl comes back in and wisely enough demands double the pay. And of course, Chaplin, desperate to get this movie on the shelves, agrees. Let's talk about some of the best parts of this film. Of course, Chaplin's iconic fight scene. So funny. You see the choreography. You, he makes it seem so effortless. The way he's bouncing around the ring, you know, you know, flubbering here and there. And then, of course, I want to touch on the most talked about part of this movie. The final three minutes where the flower girl realizes that her secret admirer, this rich wealthy man that was helping her, that gave her her sight back, was the tramp all along. I love this scene. I think it deserves the hype it gets. I also love the touch that when they first meet, it's because the flower girl has dropped a flower and the tramp is picking it up to return to her. And in this scene, it's the tramp who drops the flower. And it's the flower girl with her new regained sight who's able to reach down, pick it up, and return it to him. It's such a wonderful, subtle little, you know, way to tie up this story. And of course, the biggest thing they talk about in this film is the way that Chaplin just gets that goofy, guileless grin on his face when he realizes he has someone in his corner. There is someone out there who loves him for who he is. And we've seen him just lose time and time again in this movie trying to please her. That final cathartic moment, everyone knows what it's like to finally know I have not only a friend, but maybe in this case, a lover. Um, it just wraps up the film completely, and I really wish I had more thoughts to share with you all. But like I said, City Lights, it's the favorite of so many people. And I also found it very reminiscent of that scene in Roman Holiday that I touched on when we covered that movie, in which Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn are tasked with this very challenging, you know, job of conveying their emotions, these very profound, poignant emotions without really ever saying anything to each other on screen. It's their farewell, it's their closure, and it's communicated solely through the eyes. And of course, that's one of the excellent things about silent films, is they have to come up with these very creative and these very, um, you know, not all the time so subtle ways to express exactly what their characters are feeling because speech is so limited to them. I will also like to point out that most silent films, especially of the earliest era, really had to draw onto the theater. They had to have exaggerated motions to express their thoughts. You know, they wore the heavy makeup so that they could be able to be seen to the cheap seats in the back. But this film feels subdued, oddly enough, even though it is such a technological back, you know, step backwards it still feels so modern in the way that final scene plays out, and it is 100% worth the hour and a half you have of watching it. I will say my only criticism of this film is I don't think it is the number one American romantic comedy of all time, and I'm a little perplexed as to why the AFI rewards it so highly. Now, the AFI is a huge champion, a of Chaplin. On their top 100 best American film institutes, they have several of his films listed there. In my opinion, though, this is just yet another silly, cute, adorable Chaplin movie that just happens to have this romantic storyline weaved throughout its premise. But I don't think the romance in this movie is central to the plot enough for this to be deemed a romantic comedy in general. 
Chaplin always finds these very kind of loose, flexible plots in order to, you know, make a story linear, to make it coherent to its viewers, to actually make it a story. However, I was reading that when he does, I mean, his way of working is he would basically film certain scenes. As we spoke, these, this is episodic. He would film very certain scenes and then from there he would look at them. He would assess how can the story grow from there. He didn't start out to make an excellent romantic comedy. Face it, romantic comedy was not a genre. And perhaps that's why the AFI awards it so highly, because perhaps through their very specific lens, this is what kickstarts the genre of the rom-com. I don't see that. I think what kickstarts the genre of the rom-com is three years later in Frank Capra's It Happens One Night, a film that I think is far more accessible to modern audiences and a film that just simply does feel more modern. I think this film is another really great uh, Chaplin film that is deserving of all the praise it gets, but I don't see it as a romantic comedy and I don't necessarily see how award bodies could see it either. The formula even really doesn't resemble that of a romantic comedy as much, since you don't have that banter between the sexes that is normally the defining comedy of the comedy part of romantic comedies. Rather, the comedy section comes solely from Chaplin's, you know, many encounters throughout his days trying to win over this girl. And I guess that's what qualifies it, but in my opinion, it simply just doesn't make the cut. So, that about wraps up my views on City Lights, and now I want to go ahead and talk about the project as a whole. Of course, for those of you who don't know, I was covering what the AFI consider the top 10 best romantic comedies of all time. I did this for a few reasons. For one, I'm a lover of romantic comedies. I think it's a genre that's very easy to flubber up, and I just wanted to take a deep dive and see, hey, what do critics really consider the best of the bunch? So, yeah, we went through and we looked at it. I was also paying close attention to how, you know, movies perpetrated what romance should be like, how maybe society was influencing the film or vice versa, how this film left an imprint on society, which is often the case with these big culturally relevant movies. Um, so, without further ado, I want to break down and I want to rank the films the AFI listed as the best. But there's a little bit of my personal flair here because this is my ranking. This is how I would take the movies on the list and how I would personally say, okay, best, best, better, the greatest. So without further ado, let's start off at number 10. The first movie I have and what I consider to be the worst movie and the least deserving movie on this list is Adam's Rib. To me, this was just a vehicle for Hepburn and Tracy and the AFI just knew they had to pick one of their many collaborations because they needed representation on the list. Sure, this is a good one to pick, but I don't think the film is all that inspired, I don't think it's all that influential, and I don't even think it's all that interesting or funny. Hepburn and Tracy have undeniably undeniable chemistry, but in that podcast, a major theme that we touch base on is it's so hard to buy into it completely because I did that with Caitlin Terry, shameless plug go check it out um the film is based on this premise that a woman had every right to try and attempt to murder her cheating husband which in my opinion is just not valid enough a premise to build an entire film about two battling husband and wives moving on number nine yes yours truly city lights now don't get me wrong 
I like this movie. I like this movie a lot. But am I going to just pop it in one day when I just have nothing going on? Probably not. We've talked about how that's likely because of the cultural divide. That is not something I'm ashamed about at all. As modern times evolve, haha, <laughs> wink wink, so does our expectation and our standard for good entertainment. And while I see how this was so innovative and so craftful at its time, it simply isn't as interesting to me now because I am conditioned to expect other and more suitable to my generation <laughs> forms of entertainment. I respect this for what it is, I admire it, and that final scene really elevates it and Chaplin shines. It's an excellent film, and I will definitely be returning to it one day, as well as I'll be returning to a lot of other Chaplin films, because even though I am separated by him by about a hundred years, I still can't resist the charm either. Coming in at number eight, and I would like to clarify some, I should have started off with this, but just some criteria for this list is it's just strictly what I enjoyed the most. Not so much looking at influence, not so much looking at innovation, but just what am I as a movie viewer, as a casual passive movie viewer, what do I appreciate and what do I want to see on my screen? Number eight, we have Moonstruck. This one was surprising to me. I had never seen it before. I knew it was an acclaimed romantic comedy and I was shocked I had never seen it before. This genre that I loved, I had never seen Moonstruck starring Cher, Nicolas Cage, and it was unfortunately extremely underwhelming. Um, I thought that it perhaps deserves a revisit because maybe I wasn't paying as close attention or really appreciating it as much as I was in the time, but I felt it was uninspired and underdeveloped. Something we talked about in that podcast, please go back and review it if you have the time, is that these characters, their motivations not fleshed out completely to make them feel real, to make this authenticity that Norman Jewson really attempts to build, this Italian culture, this um, Italian way of life. He does an excellent job conveying that, but a poor job at really getting into these characters' heads and trying to explain their motivation behind their actions, which to me didn't make sense really at all throughout this movie. It has a problematic storyline and it doesn't overcome its charms, although it does have its moments. Coming in at number seven, we have It Happened One Night. It's far better than expected and it holds up remarkably well. Claudette Colbert, Clark Gable, these two have extreme chemistry, bounces off the wall, and it's in in my opinion, should probably take the number one place over City Lights because while City Lights is considered a romantic comedy and pantomime, I think It Happened One Night really nails the formula, and I think this is what set the template for what romantic comedies would look like. Whereas I think, like I said, City Lights is yet another vehicle for Charlie Chaplin to be charming. In number six, we have Sleepless in Seattle. Now, this is a movie I thought I would love so much more because I've seen it so many times growing up. But upon re-review and a great conversation I had with Audrey Supan, I realized that the strong script barely overcomes its portrayal of this flimsy and pitiful heroine that Meg Ryan plays. We talk a lot about how she seems so desperate and so unrealistic in the way she pursues Tom Hanks' character. And... I unfortunately still love this film, but just not as much because that conversation really opened my eyes to how, no, there are better romantic comedies out there that treat their female leads a lot more fair. You gotta love Nora Ephron though, and I'm excited I get to talk about her more highly ranked on this list. Number five, we have The Philadelphia Story. It's a smart script, there's great performances, and Jimmy Stewart. Enough to get Jimmy Stewart on the list, and I know that's my personal biases, but hey, this is my own podcast, so I can have bias towards anything I want. The Philadelphia Story does have a problematic storyline, though. 
I actually did this with my mom, and we were able to talk about how Catherine Hepburn ending up bending over backwards and, you know, returning to her formerly domestic abusive husband is supposed to be a happy ending in the eyes of the American public, and I'm not buying it. 2021 Burke, not for me. Number four, we have Roman Holiday. This irresistibly charming, exceptional performance is, it's also aged remarkably well. Roman Holiday was a great surprise for me since I'd never really seen it in its entirety. I came into it expecting it to feel kind of like Adam's Rib from the same decade, similar, not similar stars, but, you know, the two Hepburn vehicles. Um, but no, it wowed me. I loved it. I can't wait to watch this one again. I can't wa wait to one day show it to my daughter. It's also aged so well in the era of Me Too. That scene between Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn just needs to be the basis. You know, every young man and woman needs to see that scene because I think it really accurately portrays what it's like when you have potentially a sexual encounter in your hands, but you know you can't act upon it. Number three, we have Harold and Maude. I'd heard of Harold and Maude before. It's notorious in culture for being that May-December romance, you know, controversial film. And this film came out in the early 70s, and I feel like if it was released tomorrow, just as it was back in the day, I think it would still be just as good a movie. The script is tight, the script is actually funny, and it has this really dark, deep humor that turns, you know, surprisingly profound, surprisingly poignant at the end. And I learned so much about what it is to maximize life and to maximize your opportunities from watching this movie. It's as equally unique as it is bold, and it's this daring film about the value of life and how we should be pursuing the best version of ourselves. I see so much of myself in both of these characters, which is saying so much given that Maude is an 80-year-old woman and Harold is a very depressed young man. This really speaks to the verisimilitude of the film, and the soundtrack is outstanding. I loved it. I'm happy I've seen it, and I'll definitely be recommending this to more people. I expected it to be very weird, and it was, but it was also so touching. Number two, we have, of course, When Harry Met Sally. I know this is a safe choice, and I don't care, because this movie does all the rules, doesn't break any rules, doesn't break the mold, and it's still excellent. I told you we'd talk about Efron again, and here we are. Of course, this is an one of the easiest watches on the list, given that it is one of the most conventional romantic comedies, but there's nothing wrong in that because the genre so seldom does it well, and when it does it as well as When Harry Met Sally, you need to celebrate a little bit. And of course, that brings us to number one, my favorite movie on the list. It's Annie Hall by Woody Allen. Of course, I was able to just talk about this movie last week in my podcast, but we really talked about Woody Allen's history as a filmmaker. We spent extensive time there, so I won't get too into it here, but I will say it's original, it's got this exceptional, funny, tight script, and it leaves me thinking each time, which is the biggest goal of a film. You want to be left thinking, how did that make me feel? How did that touch me? How am I going to change now that I've seen this picture? With that said, I am extremely curious to see how this movie ages through the years, especially with Alan's tarnished legacy. But for now, this movie really redefined the way I personally went out to find, you know, other intellectual filmmakers that I enjoyed. And it really opened my eyes to this entire plethora of people who spoke and wrote and directed like Alan. And I'm just so happy that this movie came into my life. Although I will say, I wish it come from a director 
who didn't have such controversial circumstances plaguing his legacy. So, that's my list. I encourage everyone to tell me, if you ever get the chance, what your ranking of these films would be. And before we close out the podcast, I also just want to take a moment to talk about some films that I think were excluded from the list. Now, granted, it was released in 2007. Some of these movies on this list also came out after 2007, so they didn't even get to be acknowledged for the list. But I still think these are excellent romantic comedies that should at least be included when we talk about the best of the genre. The first one I have is the only one on this list that I would really consider a Annie Hall contemporary. This movie is unique, raw, authentic, and it's this window into romantic heartbreak that I don't think has carried as much as much verisimilitude since Annie Hall. And it's 500 Days of Summer. This is the first movie, and I'm not even exaggerating here, this is the first movie I have ever seen that actually made me cry at the end. They work so hard to paint this realistic picture of romance. And I also say, as a woman watching this, this is a movie that really handles relationships with accuracy and with fairness. And you're able to leave and step away and say, no, he sabotaged that relationship. Joey Gordon-Levitt sabotaged this relationship. And while you do, and that's not a spoiler, by the way, since they do tell you these two people are not going to be ending up at the start of the film, similar to Annie Hall... While that's not something that necessarily makes you resentful toward Levitt, it does help you empathize with him, but it also helps you realize, I see how you were a hopeless romantic, and I see how this, unfortunately, didn't work out in your favor. Another one I love is My Big Fat Greek Wedding. It's Moonstruck, but with Greeks. Although I will say it has a far more appropriate and sensible storyline, and oh, I just think it's better, period. Another one I have on this list, without really great reasoning why, is Bridget Jones's Diary. What? I think it's funny. I think it's charming. I'm in love with Colin Firth. I would have loved to see this one represented. I think it was really refreshing for women to see this, you know, female lead that just looked normal and behaved like them and had the same flaws they did as well. It's hard to come by that even by today's standards. Women rarely look so normal and are as relatable as Bridget Jones in this movie. And yeah, the story is not relatable, but at least she is, and that's refreshing. Another one I have is The Big Sick. This is an underseen, humorous, and unexpectedly touching film about the barriers that confine our love life, and it really changed my perspective after watching it. I wish more people had seen this movie, and luckily enough, I know the critics agree with me. They think this is excellent. They think that this really tackles a subject that romantic comedies are oftentimes either too afraid or too uninterested to tackle, which is you know, the racial and ethnic differences that often divide people, or, in the case of Big Sick, divide the families. Another one I have is The 40-Year-Old Virgin. I don't know if this technically applies to the romantic comedy genre, but hey, I say it does. It's Apatow at its best, and it feels shockingly genuine despite its star-studded cast. Another one I have is About Time. This is one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time. This really unique picture about a time traveler who situates his life so that he can win over his love, please his family, and also balance this harrowing secret with his everyday routine is just so accessible in such a surprising way. I try to watch this movie at least once a year. The soundtrack's adorable. And again, with the exception of the adorable and beautiful Rachel McAdams, this movie 
features primarily normal-looking people functioning in what a lot of us have seen and experienced as just your conventional normal family. Again, refreshing, authentic take on what it is like to fall in love with a little bit of a fantastical spin that, for some reason, really works. I have While You Were Sleeping, charming, just charming, the whole way through. I also have Trainwreck on here. Not much to say, but I love Bill Hader, and if you are a supporter of Amy Schumer, you'll probably love this movie. Again, it has this genuine, authentic take on what it's like to simply not fall in love, but reject the notion that you may one day be in a monogamous relationship. I think this is a movie that works in today's generation and may not have worked in previous, but what can I say? I still enjoy it, despite some of its flaws. Now, of course, I've primarily seen modern romantic comedies, and that's because it's what's available to me. That's what people were watching at sleepovers. That's what was most likely to air on TV. It's just easier to find a romantic comedy that came out 10 years ago than to have to go to the classic movie channels and, you know, wait for one to come on that came out decades ago. But I do have one here that I really love and want to touch base on. It's about two anonymous writers who fall in love but hate each other in person. And no, it's not Nora Ephron's You've Got Mail. It's in Sloopage's The Shop Around the Corner. A totally underseen Jimmy Stewart picture. I love this film. He stars alongside Margaret Sullivan and they were real-time friends and their chemistry really shines through. I wish more people saw this movie given that it's made by a notable director, it has notable stars, and I really don't know why history's kind of forgotten it as one of the best romantic comedies. I think this movie's great, I think it's charming, and I think it really competes against, you know, its contemporary, You've Got Mail. I would even go as far to argue it's better. But then again, biases. I wish it were represented not only on this list, but just by the AFI more in general. So, that about wraps up my thoughts on the project as a whole, and I guess to close this out, we can just talk about, you know, something that was really driving this entire discussion, that was being a woman, and romance, and what do these stories perpetrate, and what do they tell me? Well, the horrid and honest truth is, if a movie has sexist portrayals of women, then it doesn't age well. You know, this, I think the best example of this would be the Philadelphia story. As much as I love those leads, and as much as I love the story in itself, the script, the ending really doesn't work for me. This was also a really hot topic of debate when we covered Sleepless in Seattle, and we said this woman is behaving irrationally. No female in her right mind would ever behave this way when pursuing a man. It's not that I wish these films could overcome this flaw, but I just wish that they never even had to deal with it in the first place. It saddens me that we once occupied a world where these things were more, I don't know, acceptable, where people weren't pointing fingers. And it also saddens me that when people go back to review these movies years later, why this isn't being spoken about. Not that I want to discourage anyone from watching them. They're great films, but they're also great talking pieces and they're conversations I want us to have. So, without further ado, I guess I can wrap up my final thoughts on the project as a whole. Each one of these films was worth watching. Each one of these films taught me something new about the way movie language works most effectively. 
And it taught me about what I most admire in a film. I learned that the script is key, and the movies with strong scripts that made sense to me really elevated my perception of the entire thing. And of course that makes sense. Anybody will tell you the script is the most important thing. Perhaps if Adam's Rib or Moonstruck had a more believable premise, I would be ranking them higher on my list. So thank you all for watching. This completes romcom.com, the analysis of the AFI's top 10 best American romantic comedies. Thank you all for joining me, and I hope to see you all again soon.